Well, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast of the Grove Church where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that is deep but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life whole Bible reading plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. Yeah, along with that, if you have any questions that you would like to be answered about the Bible, email your questions to info at grove.church. That's info at grove.church. Obviously, we can't get to every single question, but we want to do our best. And because of that, we've done in the past um, podcasts dedicated to your questions. Bonus episodes. Bonus episodes. Make sure you are sending those questions in. It's our favorite podcast so far where we get to answer things and um, honestly, sometimes get stumped and have to do some research ourselves. So we love it. But with that, let's get into the Bible talk today. Well, and this week we want to uh, highlight some of our readings from the book of Exodus. You remember last week we talked about Exodus is really the story of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, God hearing the cries of his people and redeeming them and rescuing them, and also God's call on the life of Moses. And so this week uh, I wanted to really zoom in and talk about um, one aspect that's probably among the most famous parts of Exodus. I mean, there's there's a few that are kind of your uh, – if you've read the story before, if you've seen any of the movies, like you know about uh, the burning bush, the 10 plagues, you know about, you know, the 10 commandments, the parting of the Red Sea. And and this week I want to talk about the 10 plagues and go a little bit deeper into some stuff that maybe uh, we hadn't fully thought about. And so to give a little bit of background to this discussion, one of the major differences between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt um, is that the people of Egypt were what's called a polytheistic culture. And what that means is that they don't believe in just one God, but rather they believed in a multitude of gods. And what you see with this is normally for every aspect of life, there's one God that's assigned to that particular aspect. And so the people of Israel believe in the one true God. Uh, We as Christians believe in the one true God who is Lord over everything. Whereas in the Egyptian culture, there are certain gods who are Lords over certain things. And one of the underrated parts of the 10 plagues is really how it's God's way of showing not just the people of of Egypt, but also the leadership of Egypt and the people of Israel, his power over all of the gods of Egypt. And so to give you an idea, no, just kind of scrolling through, um, and this is something I'd encourage you, we're not going to be able to go through all of it, but look it up online. It's really interesting, but you can look at some of the different gods, right? So there's Hapi, who is the Egyptian god of the Nile. And so what's the first of the 10 plagues that we see? Well, it's God turning the Nile water into blood. You go through, there's Heket, there's Geb, there's, you know, I don't know how to pronounce all these. I didn't study the Egyptian gods. But you should be more prepared next time. I know. I'm going to go with Kepri. Um, but anyways, as we scroll like through. Like the pants? Like the pants. Capris? Capris not Capris. Oh, okay. Capris. Isis, not the, uh, not the terrorist organization. And then Nut. That's a great name. Seth, Ra. And so the two I wanted to talk about actually are here. Uh, in the final plagues, we have Ra, who is the god of the sun, who is one of the actual major gods of Egypt at this particular time. Uh, when you look at the history of pharaohs, there's actually quite a few cults that are started by different pharaohs where they specifically worship Ra and kind of move uh, the culture of Egypt along that way. And so what does God do? Well, he completely blots out the sun and there's three days of darkness in Egypt. And what he's doing there is demonstrating that even uh, to one of these gods who the Egyptians would have viewed as the most powerful, God has dominion and power over that. And then finally, I would say uh, the final plague is the death of the firstborn. 
And this isn't just one particular god, although you have, you know, Osiris being lord of the dead and then Pharaoh kind of being the ultimate uh, power in Egypt as far as like, you know, they believe God in human form almost in that sort of way. But it's really messing with the Egyptian idea that they control what happens after death. And we see with, you know, mummies and the pyramids and all these different things, the Egyptian people were very obsessed uh, with the afterlife. They were very obsessed with, you know, controlling what happens to them after death. And all of a sudden God comes in and he just wipes out the firstborn of Egypt. And it's, it's, it's an incredible display of God's power. And at the same time, like we talked about earlier, it's an incredible display of God's mercy because yes, he does uh, wipe out the firstborn of Egypt, but he also gives mercy to the people of Israel. And this is where we get uh, the Jewish feast of the Passover. And if the Passover sounds familiar, it's because the last week of Jesus's life, when we get the last supper and all these different things is actually, it takes place during the week of the Passover feast. And the Passover feast becomes one of the most important holidays in the Jewish calendar. And what it celebrates is that when the angel of death came and took the firstborn of Egypt, it passed over the houses of the people of Israel that they were spared. Yeah. And I think also, as we talk about, you know, God's mercy, after every single one of these plagues, Moses then went back to Pharaoh. And it even shows in this entire, just this entire story is that even in the midst of these plagues, God was still offering essentially an olive branch to Pharaoh saying, hey, like this is what's going on. Our God is more powerful. You need to let my people go. Yeah. And it's just cool because so so often we we focus on the plagues and, um, you know, the locusts and the frogs and, and, and the water turning into blood and all these things. But we don't really pay attention to the in-between. This wasn't just something that God was doing just to show his power. He showed his power, then offered redemption through it every single time. Mm -hmm. And then Pharaoh obviously rejects the mercy of God. Like we see in the Bible over and over again, uh, and we even just talked about it with Revelation a few weeks ago, is that God continuously extends mercy even to those who are outright in rebellion against him. And so often those people will reject his mercy. Yeah. And with that, I think it's a great reminder as we look through just the story of the Old Testament. It's a good reminder that we don't just view the God of the Old Testament as vengeful and angry. Um, a lot of people just kind of see God, um, there's the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. The reality is God has always displayed mercy in everything he's done. Absolutely. And it's not just that one day when his son Jesus came to the earth, he said, okay, I'm no longer in a bad mood. That's not good theology. That's not a way we need to look at God. What we need to look at God is a God, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God's love for us and the way that God responds to us will never change. And so we can't view God as angry one day, happy the next. It's not how it works. Um, we just have to remember that even in God's wrath, he showed mercy. Well, with that, we are going to be um, wrapping up the book of Acts this week. Um, this book is phenomenal. It's just a beautiful story of the early church. It's awesome. We get introduced to so many key players in the early church. Um, one that we've kind of focused in on is Paul. And uh, Paul is kind of finding himself in an interesting situation at the end of Acts. We're going to be zooming in to um, Acts 25 through 28. And Paul finds himself on trial, um, essentially for being a Christian. And in chapter 26, uh, I just love how Paul 
just goes back to his uh, conversion story in front of everybody. And, uh, you know, as he's talking to this guy um, named Agrippa, he is basically saying, you know, this is what God has done in my life. And I love that um, he just basically shares the story of what Jesus had called him to do. And what it just reminds me, and we're going to pick up in uh, in verse 15 through, um, through 18, it says this, Paul asks, once he was um, blinded on the road, he asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell me what I shall show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles, which is a big deal, by the way, in Jewish culture. Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And I think this is an awesome little snippet that Paul is recounting this to somebody who's persecuting him. He's saying to Agrippa, listen, I can't stop what I'm doing because my calling in my life is so much greater than anything that could happen for me. That we see him as he's going down this road to surely be put to death. Um, it's not just a fact of like he's going to get arrested and told not to do it. Um, he's on his way to being executed. And this whole trial, he's, you know, long story short, he's trying to get a fair trial. He's going to end up going to Rome um, to see Nero, which is not much better of an option for him. But what he's saying is, man, I have been called to something greater than my own life. And not to get, you know, super deep and super spiritual, but we all have this same calling in our life that when Jesus came and died for us and he set us free from the sin that we've um, been so entangled in, he's given us a second lease on our life. And what Paul is saying is, and and, and Paul really just understands this. And in the midst of certain death, he is telling Grippa, hey, like, I know you're telling me to stop. But this message and this calling, it's bigger than myself. And I think it's a good reminder for us, man. We sometimes get just so um, scared of persecution because we're afraid of what people might post about us on Facebook (laughs) or what people might post about us on Instagram or text about us. Man, Man, like persecution today is nothing compared to persecution in the past. I don't mean to minimize it because I think that we do have it in our own way, but it's always good to have perspective. Like it could be way worse. Like we could be a first century Christian whose lifespan from conversion to death is about 30 days. But really, um, I think it's more of an encouragement for us to man in the midst of just Paul's, you know, hands down Paul's biggest obstacle in his life that, that he is saying, you know what? It's bigger than myself, Agrippa. I can't do this. And so I hope that's an encouragement to those of us out here who maybe are worried about, um, you know, being a Christian or even sharing our faith, inviting somebody to, to, you know, the Grove Church or to one of our men's dinners or our ladies' nights. Let's go with the mindset of, man, like Paul was getting put to death. And it's not that we can, you know, compare ourselves, but it's like, man, if Paul's doing that, how much of an encouragement is that to me to say, man, he's doing this in the face of death. What's the worst that can happen for me? Yeah, I think one one of my favorite stories in that whole uh, just part of Acts is, 
even before uh, Paul starts to go to Rome, before he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with some of the elders in one of the churches that he started. And they said, hey, you know, uh, the Lord told us in a vision that if you go there, you're going to be arrested and, and killed. And Paul's like, yeah, God told me this exact same thing. And he just like <laughs> kind of keeps going. And like the whole idea is that he goes, oh yeah, you got that message. You got too? the message. Yeah, I, I, I'm, but and, and it's kind of it's I, it's somewhat funny to look back on it. But the the truth of that moment is that God, not not God, Paul is so in step with God's will for his life. He's like, listen, whatever happens is going to happen. And he says it in his epistles: to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or in other words, to continue to live is to continue to do what God has put me on the earth for, is to continue to spread the gospel, is to continue to see lives change, and to die ultimately for all of us as Christians is gain. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't always feel like that. And obviously, there's always just going to be a little bit of fear. But Paul is completely aware and in step with God in the moment where he's saying that even if I am put to death, even if my life ends tomorrow, I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus. That's yeah. not something that we should be uh, afraid of. Yeah. What an encouragement. And that actually brings us to our Matthew highlight this week, which I wanted to zoom in on Matthew chapter 20, which is one of the parables that Jesus tells about uh, the workers in the vineyard. And as an aside, I think it's really interesting that so much of Jesus' preaching and so much of his ministry is built around parables. And and what Jesus understood is that um, as humans, stories have a way of moving us in a way that – um just simply talking about an idea or an issue does not. And so for instance, like, you know, it's one thing to um, talk about how things are terrible. You know what I mean? Talk about in historical um, atrocities. It's another thing to actually listen to the stories of people who went through those things and be moved emotionally by what happened. And um, Jesus understands like even stories that aren't factually true in the sense of obviously um, this probably didn't happen with the, the master and the vineyard and the workers and stuff like that, but he's illustrating a point that is so much – it sticks with us so much easier because we can relate to the story than if Jesus simply said his point to start off. And so to recap the parable, it's essentially this. There's a master. He owns a vineyard and he wants to have it harvested. And so he goes into town and he hires a group of workers to come for a 12-hour workday is about what was normal. And so he hires them to come and they go begin to work in his field. A few hours go by and he realizes that he's going to need uh, more and more people. So it says in the third hour, he saw more people standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And this repeats every so often until finally in the 11th hour, the master goes back. He finds more workers and he sends them in, even though they're only working for about an hour. And after all the work is done, they do a great job. The workers come back and the master begins to give them their wage. And so back then, a fair day's wage is a denarius. So that's what he agrees to pay them. And so the workers who worked the entire 12-hour shift were given a denarius. And then the next group of workers come. They hadn't worked quite as much. They probably worked about nine hours. And he gives them a denarius as well. And he does this to every single group of workers until he gets to the final workers who had only worked for the last hour of the day. And he gives them a denarius. And the first group of workers are actually really upset about this. And they say, you know, these last only worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And I love what the master says here, but he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
So the last will be first and the first last. And one thing that I think is important to keep in mind, we talked about this last week and and, uh, the week when we introduced Matthew, that the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And that's why, you know, as you're reading, there's always these little asides that say, this is to fulfill what was written by the prophet so-and-so. And so it's written to the idea that if you are a first century Jew, you have a knowledge of the prophets, you have a knowledge of the law. And as you're reading through Matthew, you're seeing that this thing that Jesus did shows that he is the Messiah. Well, the other important part that the other important idea that Matthew needs to convey to the people uh, that he's writing to is that the Gentiles are kind of like the workers who arrived in the 11th hour. The Gentiles are like the people who um, they didn't work for the entire day, and yet they're receiving the exact same grace that the people who work for the whole day did. And so for the first century Jew, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I have faithfully kept the law. I've done all the sacrifices. I've kept the dietary laws, just like my father has and his father before him and his father before him, all the way back to Abraham. These people were dedicated to keeping the law of God. And then Jesus kind of comes and it almost seems to turn the system on its head where he says, that's awesome. You receive grace and salvation through me. You know, who also receives grace and salvation is the people who for generations were worshiping idols, the people who for generations were stuck in sin. Everyone who comes to Jesus, everyone who repents and follows him also receives grace. And and the hard truth that, that the workers in the vineyard and also the Jewish people and even us today have to wrestle through is that our salvation does not depend on the quantity or even necessarily the quality of our work, but rather our salvation depends on the generosity of God. And that's why I think he loves when he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Salvation belongs to God alone. He chooses what he does with it. And the idea of this parable is really putting forward that It's not about how long you've been doing anything. It's rather about have you turned and have you, do you trust in Jesus? Yeah. And I think even we see this in the story of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Yeah. And, and so many times, like we, we hear stories of people in the Bible that are like, well, sir, he's this, or, you know, teacher, he's that. But then even Jesus to his last breath on the cross is still extending this grace to people. And I think it's important to remember um, that this book of Matthew, it wasn't written at the same time Jesus was performing these miracles. So we can actually kind of read into the backstory a little bit of this was probably an issue for the early church is a lot of people, um, there was segregation between Gentiles and Jews. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting to note that um, even in this whole story, the, the disciples ended up getting it. <laughs> we see them not get it a lot. Yeah. Like in Acts, we talked about how, um, you know, God starts to save the Gentiles and they have a meeting to decide whether or not God's allowed to do that. It's just <laughs> kind of this, it's this whole, um, and so much, so many of Paul's epistles, his letters are written talking about the tension between the mm-hmm. Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And even for us today, I think it does apply where, you know, most of us aren't, uh, uh, Jews who have converted to Christianity these days. But I, I will say, think about um, how easy it is to define people by what they've done in the past and not by what God is doing with them in the present. And yeah. we, with a thief on the cross is a great example. Or even the uh, the Pharisees, and the, not the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, everyone who Jesus is ministering to, and they always pull him aside and say like, hey, did you know this about this person? And, and what we see is that 
it's just about accepting God's grace. It's about yeah. following Jesus. It's not about defining people based off of like the mistakes or the sin that they've made because like, and we'll get into it in Romans, Paul's very clear. The Bible's very clear. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We don't get to stand back and point to other people and say that they deserve salvation less because salvation belongs to God. Yeah. And he gets to give it out as he pleases. Yeah. And I just think it's so true, even for us today. And I think it's such a great reminder that, you know, we don't have to um, convict other people of sin. I I was very convicted this last week as I was just prepping for our youth and, you know, with youth culture, and there's just so much stuff that's going on that is so radically different, even from when I grew up, from other people, um, that things that once were totally unacceptable in culture are now cu- culturally acceptable. Yeah. And and I'm not saying this to give, uh, you know, an excuse, but I was just very convicted because I have a lot of hot takes on, on how culture is being, um, you know, just progressing. And really what I was just really convicted by the Holy spirit. And it was one of the clearest times I've heard God speak to me. He said, stop worrying about that and just start loving people the way that I love them. And I think, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it's a good reminder that we don't need to defend God. We don't need to defend his word. We need to love people like the way his word says. And we don't need to say, well, you can't be doing this and you can't be doing that. Now there's a time and a place for that. Obviously when we have relationship with people, but, man, what would the church look like if we loved people radically the way Jesus did? And what we see often in, in the uh, the different ways that Jesus treats the Pharisees and the sinners. And with the, with the sinners, what happens is Jesus shows them love. Jesus shows them acceptance. And then he shows them the ways that they've erred. So it's not this kind of idea of uh, – I don't know what word you used to call it, but it's not just simply, you know, like loving people and never, you mm-hmm. know, helping them. But it's the idea that the first thing that those people need is not rejection to be told how they're doing it wrong, but rather love, accept, show them that God loves them. And then you can also help help them see mm-hmm. how what they're doing is sinful at the end of the day as well. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, we are going to be going into Psalms 31. Psalm 31 um, is another Psalm of David. And really, it's David's prayer, um, and it's kind of a, a worship song, and he's talking to God about having the Lord come to him and be his refuge. Um, and, and we could talk a lot about that, but also I want to dive into verse 5. Um, it's a very familiar saying for those of us who know the story of Jesus as he is being crucified. Psalm 31.5 says this, "'Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God.'" What I love about this is it's Jesus on the cross as he's quoting this. He is um, paralleling his story between David and, um, and and David's distress along with what he's going. Now, obviously, we're not talking about um, the the passage of Luke. Uh, it's Luke twenty three forty six. Um, right now, we're talking about Psalms thirty one. But I think um, you know we're not going to take a, a ton of time on this this week because it's a pretty straightforward psalm of David praying for the Lord. He says, "In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness." It's David is in another situation where he's saying, "God, I need your help." Classic David. Classic David. <laughs> 
And what I love about this is this is a man who is powerful. It's a man who is the leader of a nation, who is um, always at war, who people are always trying to kill, not just when he was king, but even before. David has lived a very tumultuous life. But what I think we can be reminded of is, man, in the midst of our trials, David can be um, really an example to us. Man, David is somebody who has faced a lot. David is somebody who has gone through a lot. David is somebody who, at, I mean, even his own sons try to kill him. David has seen it all. Yeah. And David is always reminding himself, God, in you, I take my refuge. Protect me. God, you are my protector. God, you are my strong tower. You are my fortress that I have uh, safety behind. And I just want to pause and just remind all of us that the God of David is our God too. The God who he doesn't forget about us, but he wants to protect us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't think I could have said anything better. Anything better. So I'm just going to go right into our, our final section today. And that is introducing the book of Romans. Now, Romans is uh, one of the largest epistles that we have as far as uh, any of the letters written by the apostles. And it's also one of the most important, which is a, a weird thing to say. I'm not saying it's um, better than any of the other epistles necessarily, but it's incredibly important because of how big it is and how really deep at every level Paul is trying to go through and explain theology. And the reason it's like that is because Paul has never been to the church in Rome, and he also didn't start the church in Rome. And so he's really making an effort to clearly lay out in the clearest possible terms what the gospel is, what our salvation comes from, and all these different issues. And so we see Paul work in almost a, a systematic theology of all these different things. And that's a that's a bigger phrase. And so here's here's what it means. Um, basically, there's, there's two different ways of looking at it. There's biblical theology and systematic theology. So to think about it in our um, the context of the podcast, when we were talking about Job and suffering and what does the book of Job say about suffering, that's biblical theology. We're talking about what does that book of the Bible say about that topic. Systematic theology would say, what does the entire Bible say about something? And so with Romans, we're seeing not just Paul uh, picking and choosing from one particular source, but he's gathering a lot of different sources to say, what does the whole of scripture and what and Jesus' teachings say about sin, say about salvation, say about where our hopes comes from, all of these different things. Yeah. And with that, we have to keep in mind um, his audience that he's writing to. Um, these people are not um, the same as the people that would be in Ephesus or Corinth. Um, Roman people were incredibly well-educated. And so as Paul is writing these things, he can't just kind of, um, I, I don't know, speak to their heart. He kind of has to speak to their mind and challenge them because of the cultural, um, just the way that that they respond to gods. Yeah, and at the time, Rome really was um, the center of the world, essentially. And obviously not literally geographically, but all of Western culture filtered through Rome. The most educated people were in Rome. The most powerful people were in Rome. And so when Paul, like Connor was saying, when Paul's talking to this audience, he really is trying to show them bit by bit and clearly explain every aspect of the gospel. And so to kind of give a, a little bit of an overview of the book, uh, as we've been saying, Romans was written by Paul. 
It's the uh, the Epistle of Paul to the Church in Rome, and it was written about 56 to 57 AD, uh, so about 25 years after uh, the stories in the Gospels, so after Jesus uh, ascends back to heaven is when this goes down. And Romans, to make it a little bit easier to read, because Romans is a uh, I would say it's not necessarily a difficult book to read, but it's really it's really meaty. Like there's so many times where you'll read something and then think to yourself like, I need to go back and reread that yeah. chapter like right now. So. Well, I think it's one of those there, – there's a lot of content. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Like you said, it's not difficult to read, but it's important to understand. So when you read Romans, don't read it for um, you know just checking off chapters. Read it for understanding rather than just reading it to read it because you can – Honestly, if you just kind of skip through parts of it, you might get a wrong idea of what Paul's talking about because of the systematic nature of it. Absolutely. It builds off of itself. And I would encourage you to, like sometimes uh, when I'm going through the Bible reading plan with narrative books uh, that are just telling stories, I'll listen to it in the car or whatever it is. With these ones, uh, totally great to listen to it. I would also go back through and read through it. If you have a Bible, highlight. If you can do it on the app as well, highlight, take notes. Um, it's really deep. It's really meaty. But it's it's a great book because it so clearly explains to us even today where our salvation comes from. Yeah. Uh, and Romans can be broken down into four different sections. And, and it kind of goes like this. Uh, the first chapter or the first half of the first chapter is the introduction. Uh, this is the beginning of every epistle that we have. It's the author introducing themselves to the church. Um, after that we get doctrine. And so this is Paul clearly laying out the doctrine of, uh, I mean, first off, our condemnation, the fact that we are sinners. Paul spends a lot, a few chapters, uh, chapters one through three, really clearly establishing that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve death and hell. And it can kind of be boring or not boring. It can be uh, depressing if you stop there because it really is kind of just beating you up for a few chapters. (laughs) Um, but then we get justification and justification is talked about from chapters three to five. And then right after that, we get sanctification chapter six, six through eight. And it's talking about the salvation of God, where that comes from and not just the salvation of God in the sense of, you know, when we reach the end, we will be in paradise with Jesus, but also what does that salvation mean for us today? Yeah. And I think, um, we just threw two words out there, justification and sanctification. That's a good point. (laughs) Uh, justification, really easy way to remember it. It's just as if I've never sinned. Justification is Jesus basically forgiving us of our sins. Mm -hmm. Sanctification, however, is a process, an ongoing process of our entire life. Sanctification is not a one-time thing. Sanctification, like I just said, is an ongoing process. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. And guess what, folks? We'll never get there until we die. So um, don't beat yourself up. Just remember that we are all in the process of sanctification, and none of us are perfect. Um, but that's the beauty of sanctification is every day we are becoming more and more like Jesus. Absolutely. And uh, if chapters 1 through 11 really are talking about the doctrine of our sin and our salvation that can be found only in faith in Jesus, uh, Romans 12 through 15 is really talking about like, well, what do we do in light of that salvation. And that's the great thing about Romans because it combines all of these thoughts into one book. So it's not just saying that we're broken and sinful and saying that we have to look to Jesus for our salvation. But it's all saying if if we are saved, if all of these things are true, how does that change how we live? And so it talks about our duties towards our 
our neighbors and other people, and especially the people within our own church communities. It talks about uh, what do we have towards the government, like what type of obligations do we have there, and also towards uh, those who are weak and those who are strong. And then finally, uh, Romans concludes, uh, writes a lot of different things. We'll, we'll talk more about that when we actually get to those sections, but that's just a, a quick primer on the book of Romans. Again, I would encourage you uh, if you get to the end of a chapter of reading it and you feel like maybe you didn't catch everything, go back through and read it again. Romans is a great, deep, mm-hmm. meaty book for really understanding uh, our human condition and also the incredible love and mercy of God. Yeah, and with that, um, at the beginning of every podcast, we mention, you know, ask questions. Um, this is the book where you want to ask questions. Um, there's a lot of things that you might need clarity on. Um, and not saying that, you know, people listening don't understand it, but also, um, we want to answer those questions. Uh, we love the book of Romans. Um, I've taken classes on Romans. It's amazing. Yeah, we've both written papers on Romans before. <laughs> a lot of pa- – it's like you can't be a pastor with a degree if you didn't write a book or, or – excuse me, not a book, but it feels like a book when you're writing on <laughs> Romans. You, you you write a paper or two on Romans your entire time in college. So make sure you're asking those questions. That's info at grove.church. We want to hear your questions about Romans. And with that, that wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. We are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only podcast of the Grove Church. If you would like to check out our other podcasts and resources, you can find them all at our website at grove.church. We'll see everyone next week.